The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. Never again will I give your grain as food for your enemies. And never again will foreigners drink the new wine for which you have toiled. But those who harvest it will eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather the grapes will drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Pass through, pass through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Remove the stones, raise a banner for the nations. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you will be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the, notion, from the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down my wrath. Their blood splattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance. The year for me to redeem had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alistair. Let's start, as usual, in prayer. Thank you, Father, that you both comfort and warn us. We pray that you would help us understand and heed all that you say. Amen. Well, we've now come to the final section in the book of Isaiah. That's chapters 58 to 66. In terms of the big picture, there's little that's new in this section of the book. What Isaiah does is he goes back to his very big themes and runs over them one last time, adding colour and, as it were, rounding them off. In fact, if you were to look at chapter 58 and the first half of chapter 59, you would see they go right back to what Isaiah said in chapter 1, which we looked at, uh, what, 12 weeks ago. God's people have rebelled against him. And the problem is not a lack of religious observance. Oh, there was plenty of that in Isaiah's day. No, the problem is with the people's behaviour. They don't do what is right. They have forsaken God's commands. And Isaiah says the result of that is a barrier between them and God. This is 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now, of course, in context, that was addressed to the people of Judah of Isaiah's day. But as we've seen, 
Isaiah says it applies to everyone at all times. Sin is a barrier between us and God. And having stated the problem, Isaiah returns to his consideration of what God is going to do about it. And specifically, as he said before, he says that God is going to come in salvation. This is 59 verse 15. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw there was no one. He was appalled there was no one to intervene. So what did he do? So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. And specifically, Isaiah says, God is going to send a saviour. We've just heard that in our reading. The Lord has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, see your saviour comes. His reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And back in chapter 61, we hear uh, from the Saviour. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. I suspect that's a familiar verse. It should be because Jesus read it in the synagogue at Nazareth and applied it to himself. He said that he was fulfilling this passage. As we've said innumerable times during this series on Isaiah, Isaiah points forward to Jesus. And all of that is tremendous news I will be returning to it next week in what's effectively the second half of this sermon. But for this week, we need to look at something else, something altogether more somber. You see, in the last few minutes, I've quoted selectively. I've quoted the promises of salvation. But intertwined with those promises... uh, Part of the very same prophecies in which they're contained are dire warnings of God's judgment. Let's go back to the passage from chapter 59 I quoted a moment ago. I read the end bit. He puts on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. That's where I stopped. But I stopped in the middle of a sentence. And the helmet of salvation on his head, he put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to what they have done, so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. And what about the famous Spirit of the Sovereign Lord passage? The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to do various things, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the full quote. And then in today's passage, that promise of a saviour is immediately followed by the chilling prophecy of God's vengeance that we heard read. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? 
I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me a day of vengeance. And perhaps the most unsettling part about that is the identity of the mighty warrior prophesied there. Who is this coming from Edom, from Bosra with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forth in the greatness of his strength? It is I, proclaiming victory, mighty to save. Now, Isaiah doesn't say expressly who the I is in that passage. He doesn't need to. In context, it's clear. The I is the saviour who's just been mentioned in the previous verse. The I is the one proclaiming good news to the poor. The I is Jesus. Now, at that point, I just need to pause to stress one thing. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that all who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus came, he died and rose again so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God. All of us, without exception, can receive God's pardon and blessing if we turn to Jesus and repent. But what if we don't? What then? The uniform witness of the Bible is that then God will judge. And the Bible uses horrifying imagery about that judgment. And we can't drive a wedge between the Old Testament and the New Testament in relation to this. The New Testament contains many passages that speak of God's judgment in stark terms. Jesus did that. Think about it for a moment. Think about his parables. Let's start with the parable of the wedding banquet. A wonderful parable of all people being called to a great banquet, a great feast with God. Yeah. But how does it end? A person is found who doesn't have wedding clothes. And what does the king say shall happen? The king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What about the parable of the sheep and the goats? What happens to the goats? What does the judge say? He says they are to be thrown into the eternal fire into eternal punishment. And what about Jesus' parable of the unfaithful servant? What does the master say is going to happen? What are we told the master will do? The master will cut the unfaithful servant to pieces, is what it says. And who in these parables is Jesus saying is the king, the judge, the master? It's him. He makes that perfectly clear in the parable of the weeds. The parable of the weeds, you may remember, is different from the others in that Jesus gives a full explanation of it. 
This is how his explanation ends. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. Uh, They will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, as Jesus said, he came to earth not to judge the world, but to save the world. But he also said he had authority and has authority to judge and that he will return to judge. This is what Peter said. Jesus commanded us to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. You see, Jesus is our saviour, but Jesus is also the judge. So, how should we react to that? Well, it's clear that an awful lot of Christians are very uncomfortable with it. Christians appear to be almost embarrassed to talk about God's judgment. But we shouldn't be. The Bible isn't in the least bit embarrassed by it. The Bible sees God's judgment as something good and right. In fact, if you were to go back to Isaiah chapter 24, you would see that Isaiah prophesies that when that judgment comes, God's people will rejoice about it. Why is that? Now, at this point, I need to be a bit careful. I need to be really careful that, that I don't, as it were, put God in the dock and quiz him about his ways. God is not accountable to me, and he's not accountable to you or indeed to anyone else, as Job found out. Nonetheless, the Bible does indicate that we may, in fact that we should, ask why it is that God considers such severe judgment to be appropriate. And I suggest that the starting point for that is is this, God's judgment underpins the moral position of the the universe. It underpins morality in the universe, and we should be grateful for that. Would any of us want to live in a universe in which there was no moral accountability? Think about it for a moment. Imagine a country in which there were plenty of laws but no police and no courts to enforce them. Would you want to live there? I very much doubt it. And I doubt that any of us would want to live in a universe in which there was no ultimate moral accountability, in which God did not hold people accountable for their actions. God's judgment ensures that accountability, and it is therefore good not bad. Nonetheless, I can imagine some of you thinking, but does God have to be so severe? Are things really so bad as to justify such savage judgment? Well, according to the Bible, yes, they are. 
And I suspect that our failure to appreciate that stems from our failure to understand the seriousness and the pervasiveness of sin. We appear frequently, I appear frequently, to have what I might call the bad King John view of the world. Oh yes, there are bad people out there, very bad people. Hitler, Pol Pot and many other less uh, notorious examples. And yes, we all do wrong from time to time. But basically, people are good. The problem with that view is that it's contradicted by both experience and the Bible. We tend to focus on the high-profile bad things, murders in our society and the like. But they're just the icing on the problem cake. They're not the fundamental reason why the world is as it is. The reason the world is as it is is because of myriad upon myriad of small acts of selfishness, covetousness, anger and the like. And we all participate in that. If I can coin a phrase, the problem is caused not by the few, but by the many. We are capable of doing good, yes, but we also do wrong all the time. And that's exactly what the Bible leads us to expect. We are made in the image of God. We are capable of great good. But as Paul puts it, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And above all, all have rebelled against God. None of us consistently live under the lordship of our creator. We owe God allegiance and we don't give it. And we need to appreciate the consequences of that, the significance of that. Put simply, the problems in the world stem from our rebellion against God. Everything else derives from that. And Isaiah has made it clear time and again that God is committed to undoing those consequences, undoing the consequences of our rebellion, redeeming the world. But think about it for a moment. In order to live in that redeemed world, one has to acknowledge the lordship of God. If there were people who didn't acknowledge the lordship of God there, the downward spiral would begin all over again, wouldn't it? And because of that, God has offered an opportunity to acknowledge his lordship, to turn back to him. I quoted John 3.16 a little while ago. Isaiah says the same thing time and again. We heard from Isaiah 55 a few weeks ago. This is 55 verse 7. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And to our God for he will freely pardon We can all turn back to God, acknowledge his lordship, and then, if we do, 
we will be able to be part of God's redeemed world. But if we don't, we can't be part of it. And God needs to deal with us in judgment before he can redeem the world. In fact, and this is the really key point, God's judgment is part of the redemption of the world. God's judgment is part of his salvation. That is why the idea of judgment and salvation, judgment and redemption, is wound together, intertwined in the Bible. We had an example of that in our reading. Back to verse 4. You remember I quoted the first part of it. It was for me the day of vengeance, judgment. The year for me to redeem had come, salvation. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave me support. So my own arm achieved salvation for me. Salvation. And my own wrath sustained me. Judgment. They're two sides of the same coin. For God to provide salvation, for God to provide redemption, he must deal with wrong in judgment. So let's go back to the question I posed a few moments ago. Uh, How should we respond to Isaiah's description of Jesus' judgment? Well, we certainly shouldn't be embarrassed by it. We should start with fear. Jesus said we should fear him who can throw us into hell. And we should. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But we shouldn't stop there. We should immediately remember that, as Paul put it, Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. We should repent and turn to Jesus. That's what we symbolised in the baptism of Aurella and Willow earlier in the service. That we can turn to Jesus, repent and believe. And we must do that. But having done that... We shouldn't be afraid to talk to other people about God's judgment. In fact, the Bible tells us that we have a duty to warn people about it. If you doubt that, take a look at Ezekiel 33. Jesus constantly warned people about it. We've, We've seen that. And his disciples, his apostles, followed suit. And we should follow their example. If you think about it, our family, our friends, our colleagues need to be warned. Giving that warning is actually the loving thing to do. That's why Isaiah gives us the warnings. He doesn't warn us so that we should be condemned, but so that we should turn and be saved. That's what it's all about. And as we do all of that, we should keep in mind that what God's judgment really is, the true nature of it. It's the vindication of God. It's the upholding of the moral order of the universe. It's the triumph of God's righteousness. And it ushers in the redemption of the world, the restoration of God's 
perfect lordship over creation. We should never belittle the awfulness of God's judgment. The Bible never does. The Bible constantly tells us of the awfulness of it. And we should weep for the lost. Jesus did that. But we should also see God's judgment for what it is. And as we do that, to use Isaiah's words from chapter 13, we should rejoice in the triumph of God. Amen.